Hello, everyone. I'm Olympia. Thank you for being here with me in this wonderful place called Lights Out Library. And I have a great story to tell you. I have prepared a new batch of mystery stories for you that we're going to enjoy once again. We will travel in time and space and discover different chapters of history. Our first story of the night will be about the Voynich Manuscript, a handwritten and illustrated codex that appeared in the 20th century, but was written in the 15th century, possibly in Italy. This manuscript is an unknown language that has never been deciphered. Along with the story of the manuscript, we will dive into the world of book handwriting in the Middle Ages, a practice mainly executed by monks at a time when printing was not yet in use. Our second story will take us to ancient Crete and the Minoan civilization. In 1908, a strange clay disc was discovered in the ruins of a palace in Phaistos, Crete. It is believed to date from the second millennium BC, a time when an advanced culture flourished on the island of Crete, centuries before the rise of Greek cities. The disc is covered in symbols on each side that form spirals. We will discuss the continued attempts at deciphering it. I will tell you about this artifact and what we know of this ancient Minoan civilization. To conclude our stories, we will make a stop in California and Nevada to examine the mystery of sailing stones, not a hoax nor supernatural but heavy rocks that move on a perfectly flat surface and leave a trail behind them. We will see how this is possible. So this is our program for tonight. But before we begin, assume a comfortable position. Take a long, deep, relaxing breath. When you exhale, Release the tension in your shoulders, your neck. Release the tension in your facial muscles, too. And allow the sound of my voice to guide you through this journey. In 1912, a branch of the Society of Jesus in Rome decided to sell a large library of ancient books due to a shortage of money. Precious manuscripts copied centuries earlier were put up for sale, and the majority were purchased by the Vatican Library. However, not all of them found their way there. The Polish antiquarian and bibliophile specializing in rare books, Wilfred Boynik, bought a group of 30 manuscripts from the sale. Twenty-nine of these manuscripts were rare and precious, but they were not particularly intriguing. 
Their origins and styles could be traced back to known places and periods, and their content was easily identifiable to the expert that he was. But there was one manuscript that appeared very different. It looked like a regular manuscript on parchment from the late Middle Ages. Its age was suggested by evidence indicating it was certainly not recent. However, the language and illustrations were undecipherable. The manuscript contained what looked like sentences composed of unknown words written in an unidentified alphabet. The work also included drawings and paintings using colors such as blue, white, green, and a reddish-brown. The illustrations featured plants, diagrams suggestive of astronomy or astrology, and images of women bathing in pools or tubs, seemingly connected by a network of pipes. This document was so particular that Voynich spent a considerable amount of time trying to make sense of it and determine its origins, but without success. When he died, the manuscript passed to his widow, and in 1969, the document, now known as the Voynich Manuscript, was donated to the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library of Yale University, where it remains. Since then, numerous attempts have been made to study the manuscript, to decipher it, date it, and determine if it was a coded document. The work of an unknown, perhaps eccentric, copyist, or possibly the only remaining piece of a larger body of work that has since disappeared. Or perhaps it is just an elaborate hoax. More than a century after it was purchased by Voynich, the manuscript has revealed few of its secrets, and there are hypotheses, but it is still shrouded in mystery. Before we come back to it, let's take a look at what medieval manuscripts actually are, and the generations of copyists that made them. For more than a thousand years, books in Europe were rare and hard to access, until the diffusing of printing, which really took off in the 16th century. It is hard to find reliable information on the literacy rate several centuries or even millennia ago. There are only estimates that point to about 10 or 20 percent of the population being able to read and write in Western Europe in the 16th century. Before that, in the Middle Ages, it would have been around 5% with a rising trend by the end of the period. The main centers of knowledge in written form in medieval times became monasteries for several reasons. First, by default, because in the decades 
Following the disaggregation of the Western Roman Empire, cities shrank. There was a literal urban collapse, and cities used to be the place where schools, libraries, and administrations were located. Monasteries replaced them by default, offering relative safety for collections of books and literacy among monks was higher than in general population. Access to sacred texts did not only require the knowledge of reading. They also had to know Latin and, to a lesser extent, Greek. So many monks were educated and bit by bit. They started not only preserving books, but also creating and copying them. Another reason that turned monasteries into centers for the preservation of writings was the rule of St. Benedict, which organized these communities. I will come back to that in a minute. This rule called for a library in every monastery because education and knowledge were seen as desirable. However, this job of centralizing and replicating writings was not one of the primary functions of monasticism originally in Christianity. This way of life appeared in the east of the Roman Empire, especially in Egypt, where a few Christians embraced a more seclusive form of living, isolated from human communities. These individuals couldn't be called monks yet, as they were rather hermits, and in the 4th century, communities began to form to share this secluded lifestyle. The first Christian monasteries were founded in the East. It took several centuries before this practice reached Western Europe, where it appeared in a more organized and theorized way. Several principles and rules were established for the success of monasteries both practically and spiritually, especially the rule of St. Benedict in the 6th century. Then, over time, the Middle Ages, other rules and different dutiful compliances appeared as monasticism developed across Europe. The order of St. Benedict, the Benedictines, remained, but there was a flurry of other successful orders with different rules and approaches to monasticism for men and women, like Franciscan, Dominican, Carmelite, and Augustinian. Some opted to live in city convents to directly dedicate time to helping people. Others chose extreme poverty and lived as ascetics. In the Middle and Late Middle Ages, there were a variety of situations and monastic institutions that played a big role in European societies. They administered land, they produced crafts, and they doubled as hospitals and charities. Some had looser social rules that allowed members to go out regularly and mix with the general population, while others stuck to those of seclusion and sometimes complete silence. Monasticism formed the multifaceted reality of medieval society, 
where the copying of books was just one aspect of it. Now, as you know, Christianity is not the only religion that inspired monastic life. Buddhism and Hinduism also have monks. The traditions are very different, but what they have in common is the choice to renounce to worldly pursuits to devote themselves to spiritual work and, sometimes in addition, to caring for other communities. Other religions are more critical of this way of life. It is not practiced in Islam, also very marginal in modern Judaism. When it comes to Christianity, it has remained important only in Catholicism and Orthodoxy, as Protestantism, in all its branches, doesn't really have an established monastic tradition. When the Reformation began, it was in part a reaction against greed and corruption in Roman Catholicism. Martin Luther, among himself, lived for several years in St. Augustine's Monastery in Erfurt, Germany, which many theologians and historians consider the cradle of the Reformation. When Protestantism condemned the excesses of Roman Catholicism in the 16th century, it was not just about the popes and high-ranking dignitaries of the Church. Many abbeys and convents had accumulated considerable fortunes, and this was seen as a mockery of their original calling. Living in poverty or simplicity to dedicate their existence to spiritual work and the care of those in need. Also, there is nothing in the scriptures about monasticism. It is an ancient tradition that was adopted by the Catholic Church, and it came to play a major role, especially in the Middle Ages. However, for Protestants who wanted to return to the roots of Christianity, to the texts, there was not much there to support monasticism. Thus, from the start of Protestantism, monasticism was regarded suspiciously or not given much consideration in Protestant traditions. But this was a tangent, so let's return to the production of book copyists in the 6th century. That is, still at the beginning of the Middle Ages, sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages. These were the centuries that followed the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Characterized by a decrease in the population, increased insecurity, particularly in urban centers, and the loss of many techniques and know-how that were prevalent in late antiquity. During this period, the first European monasteries that followed the rule of St. Benedict began to open rooms dedicated to books and their reading, the first medieval libraries. A specialized librarian was assigned the responsibility of caring for them, supervising who could access them, and increasingly, who could copy them. This activity of copyists soon had a dedicated room known as the scriptorium. In the early Middle Ages, this was the safest possible location for books. 
monasteries often built of stone, at a time when most constructions were of wood or adobe, provided relatively safety from fires. In the 8th and 9th centuries, many monasteries were raided by Vikings, in particular, and their libraries were lost. However, at the time, castles were still small and made of wood, and were even more susceptible to destruction. Therefore, the loss of manuscripts would have certainly been worse without these monasteries. As the Middle Ages progressed, kings and aristocrats began to create their personal libraries, often commissioning books from monasteries. Yet it was not until the 15th and 16th centuries, so at the very end of the Middle Ages, after a millennium, that religious communities were overtaken by universities and private collections in their role as keepers of knowledge. To ensure traceability, each manuscript, or more precisely, the material it was written on, was dated from the early 15th century, that is, toward the end of the Middle Ages, when handwriting was still very much the primary method of book production. I also told you it was written on parchment, not paper. And what is this? The material of choice throughout the Middle Ages for copying books was not paper, but animal skin, a tradition that dated back to antiquity. The Greeks and the Romans used essentially two materials to write on flexible surfaces, parchment and papyrus. Papyrus was an Egyptian invention, and in the Mediterranean antiquity, Egypt was the main producing center for papyrus. It was exported all across the Roman Empire. There were different qualities of papyrus. It could be very expensive, but it was still cheaper and easier to produce than parchment. Paper was invented in China and the invention traveled outside China, but very slowly. It was invented about a hundred years before Christ, and spread to the Muslim world in the seventh century. Much later, Europeans knew of the existence of the material, but it was not adopted before the eleventh century. Until then, the Catholic Church had a tradition of rejecting paper and papyrus too because parchment was seen as more durable, and also because paper and papyrus were considered unworthy of receiving sacred texts. These were materials used by the pagans in antiquity and the Muslims during the Middle Ages. Hence, there was a reluctance to accept them. This prohibition was relaxed from the 11th century, and the use of paper grew considerably across Europe. Although parchment remained the support of choice for precious books. Apart from all the work and the know-how involved in copying a book, this explained later their price. For example, one manuscript the size of the Voynich manuscript required the skin of about 15 cows. The skin had to be cut, washed, dried, 
tanned and whitened, so before a single word or decoration could be added to the book, it was already very pricey. A library of a few hundred books was already remarkable until the last centuries of the Middle Ages, and this actually illustrates the relative poverty of written culture in Europe at the time. During the same period, libraries in the Byzantine Empire and the Muslim world could contain thousands of books. One Byzantine monastery in Greece at the beginning of the Middle Ages was renowned for its 10,000 books. At the same time, the most comprehensive book collection in Western Europe to be found in Italy had 10 to 20 times fewer volumes. The predominant types of books in monastic libraries were religious. One or several Bibles were always present, and then there were many more theological works. And increasingly, along the medieval times, philosophy inspired by religion. Also, treatises of medicine, chronicles, and various scientific works. But with our modern vision, we would place them somewhere between science and magic. Astronomy and astrology were not fully separated, just as chemistry and alchemy were not distinct. Apart from Latin, which was the main language, Greek was also important, especially in scientific treatises that dated back to classical Greece, or even the times of the Roman Republic and Empire. Even after Rome annexed Greece, Greek remained the language of choice for scientific writing, and in the east of the Roman Empire, it was more prevalent than Latin. Typically, a well-educated scholar of the Middle Ages would learn Greek on top of Latin to understand the documents in Greek that were present in libraries. The way books were copied was not just by resident monks dedicating hours to copy in the scriptorium of their monastery. Sometimes books were copied by traveling monks and scholars. They would travel from monastery to monastery for particular research and ask for the right to stay and study the books, which would typically be granted. Obviously, they could take the books away, so at times they would make a copy that they could bring back to their own monastery. It took a long time. Not more than a few pages were copied in a day at most. Therefore, it took weeks or months to complete a copy, and even more to make the most precious kinds of books, illuminated manuscripts. The term illuminated comes from the use of gold and silver to illuminate texts and accompanying illustrations. The term has stayed mainly for European manuscripts of the Middle Ages, even though this practice existed in pre-Christian times and was also used by Muslim artisans to decorate their manuscripts. For most of the Middle Ages, these extraordinary precious books were produced exclusively by monks 
Sometimes it was for the monastery's library, but increasingly there were orders from kings and archbishops for the treasure of their cathedrals, or from very wealthy individuals. By the end of medieval times, the popularity of illuminated manuscripts, those who could afford them, turned into a commercial product, and secular bookmakers began to enter this trade. The most popular type was the Book of Hours, which was a religious book containing prayers to be said at certain times throughout the day. Many of these Book of Hours have survived because many were made in the last two centuries of the Middle Ages. A famous example is literally called Very Rich Hours of the Duke of Berry, which was created at the beginning of the 15th century. It is a luxurious work with texts and vivid illustrations painted in gold, silver, and lapis lazuli. It was made by secular artisans from the Low Countries, and because it was an expensive work, it was handwritten and painted on parchment paper, specifically vellum, which is parchment made of calfskin, the most precious kind. And this brings us back to the Voynich Manuscript, which is written on vellum. The material was dated with carbon-14, revealing that it was from the early 15th century, contrary to the very rich hours of the Duke of Berry book I just mentioned. The age of the pages themselves does not entirely eliminate the possibility that the manuscript could be a forgery made after the Middle Ages, possibly by Voynich himself, but it significantly reduces the probability. As I said before, a book the size of this manuscript required a lot of vellum. There are 240 pages, and given the format of the book, this is equivalent to the skin of 15 cows. Furthermore, the pages look very similar, indicating that they come from the same batch. It seems implausible that such a quantity of vellum would have remained unused for centuries, only to be employed for a hoax. Various hypotheses throughout the 20th century have pondered the authorship of the manuscript. It can be traced back from its purchase by Voynich in 1912 to the 17th century when it was in Prague. There it changed hands several times until it traveled to Italy, to Rome, and entered the collection of the Society of Jesus. But before the 17th century there is nothing substantial, and only suppositions have been made. One of them attributed the manuscript to Roger Bacon, a famous English philosopher and Franciscan friar from the 13th century. However, the dating of the parchment invalidated this hypothesis. Obviously, he couldn't have written on pages made 200 years later. A few names of scholars from the 15th century were proposed on the grounds that their illustrations resemble those from the manuscript, 
but without further evidence. These suggestions are not very convincing. At this point, the author remains completely unknown. What has attracted more effort is the attempt to decipher the manuscript. A lot has been tried, such as finding a code for known letters in the characters, but no method has worked satisfactorily. Even assuming that there are two or three layers of encoding, it could not be deciphered in this manner by any of the many experts who studied it. Many claimed they had understood the system. The language was, in fact, Latin or Hebrew, but none provided a full translation. Most of these claims were severely criticized by their peers, especially by experts in medieval manuscripts. Yet the groupings of characters that seem to form words do not seem random. The same 24 or 25 characters keep recurring. And, like in a real language, some characters never follow others. Some can be doubled or tripled, but others never are. At the same time, a notable peculiarity is that certain signs only appear at the beginning or the end of what resemble words in the manuscript which is a characteristic no European language has. The study of the distribution of signs and their correlation is that the language of the manuscript, if there is one, would be closer to Mandarin Chinese than any European language. However, attempts at deciphering it in any known language have failed so far. So the core of the mystery remains intact and we are left with only hypotheses that all look unlikely. A lost language would be hard to imagine. There is a wealth of written documents, chronicles, testimonies from the 15th century. Imagining that a language could have mysteriously existed without leaving any other trace than this particular book is very hard. Another possibility is that it has never been deciphered because the approach to coding is so unusual and never heard of that no one could figure it out yet. This is technically possible, but the fact that it resisted decades of attempts, including by experts who were able to crack sophisticated codes created by machines like during the Second World War or the Cold War, is hard to swallow. And if it's not any of these options, then we must consider the possibility that it was indeed nonsensical. For unknown reasons, someone in the 15th century, or a bit later, would have covered more than 200 pages with drawings resembling writings probably after inventing a kind of alphabet and random rules that determine the positioning of signs to make them look systematic, like a language. But this is odd, too. I mean, why bother? Why use, or rather, why use the pricey support to do that? 
possibly to trick someone into buying it in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, to sell as a mysterious object. After more than a century since Voynich found and bought this manuscript, we still lack answers and any kind of certainty. Maybe answers will be revealed later. The manuscript keeps attracting interest, and every few years someone claims they have cracked the code. Until now, the reality of what they had achieved was quite underwhelming, and those who pretend they understood it generally say it's a medicinal treaty, which can be easily guessed by looking at the illustrations of plants. At least it gave us an occasion to explore a chapter in the history of books. Now, let's move on to our second story of the night, or actually move back in time. Because this one will take us to much more ancient times with the discovery of the Minoan civilization in Crete in 1908, four years before Voynich bought his manuscript. Archaeological digs were taking place in the island of Crete at the site of an ancient palace called Phaistos. One day, an Italian archaeologist found a strange disk of clay in the basement of a room that belonged to the formal entry of the palace complex. The disk had the dimensions of a small plate, six inches in diameter. But what caught his attention was that on both sides of the disc there were stamped symbols forming spirals. Apparently the symbols had been made by pressing some sort of seals or print blocks onto a disc of soft clay in a clockwise sequence spiraling towards the center and after that the clay disc had been fired. Given the age of the ruins, the disc would have been left there and waited more than 3,000 years before its discovery. Archaeologists of the 20th century were just discovering that, on the island of Crete, especially on this site at Phaistos, one of the most ancient Mediterranean civilizations had flourished, one that was distinct from the better-known ancient Greece and existed long before Greece cities or Rome emerged as models, the time when the Egyptians built their pyramids. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was no shortage of European archaeologists around the Middle East. British, German, French, Italian, they were everywhere from Turkey to Egypt and Greece to Persia, looking for the remains of ancient civilizations. The timeline of the past, especially of early antiquity, seemed to become clearer and clearer. There was a sense of wonder at all these discoveries. Egyptian tombs and temples, early Greek ruins, the site of Troy and Turkey, the Venetian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian remains in archives. It was a fruitful period for archaeology, but a reckless one too. 
many sites were damaged or reconstructed hastily, sometimes beyond repair. We will see that Crete, with its Minoan civilization, was not spared, and at times archaeology was not entirely distinguishable from looting. Many artifacts disappeared and ended up in the hands of private collectors who were not too cautious about the origins of what they bought. So many fast and impressive discoveries certainly benefited our understanding of the past, but at a cost scientifically, because there was destruction too. Now let's go back to Crete and what we know of the Minoan civilization. Its name first. It was discovered at the beginning of the 20th century by a British archaeologist, Arthur Evans. He coined the name Minoan after Greek mythology because he identified the most important site in Crete, Knossos with the palace of the legendary king Minos from Greek and Athenian mythology. In Athenian mythology, Minos was a sort of Zeus. He governed Crete. He was the king of Crete. And regularly, the Athenians had to send twelve youths to Crete to be sacrificed to his cursor son, the Minotaur who lived at the center of the labyrinth. Evans was perfectly aware that Minos may not have existed at all, or that he may be a generic name, put on a character inspired by various kings. But because Crete had belonged to the Greek world, and is still a part of modern Greece, it made sense and the name Minoan civilization stayed. The most notable remains of this civilization are large and elaborate palaces. They could be up to four stories high. Decorated with frescoes and their design appears very ingenious. Featuring elaborate plumbing systems, for example. The largest and most famous of these palaces is that of Knossos, followed by Phaistos where the disc was discovered. However, the Minoans were not limited to Crete. Their influence spread to other islands in the Aegean Sea and to lands east and west of Crete. They had at least trade connections to ancient Egypt during the Old Kingdom and the Levant. Nowadays, Crete looks rather rocky and dry. But it seems it was not always like that. Several thousand years ago, a large part of it was covered by a primal forest, and over time, the island was deforested, especially to build ships. By the end of the Middle Ages, thousands of years after the Minoan civilization was gone, the island was a possession of Venice. At that time, it seems there were still residual forests on it, but they were cut to the last tree several centuries ago. Between forests, the nearby sea, and resources in metal, especially Crete, 
offered a favorable environment for the development of human communities and technical progress. The Bronze Age began very early in Crete, in the 4th millennium B.C. This is one of the places around the world where it first started. Maybe shortly after Sumer in Mesopotamia, but long before all of Europe or even China, in the late 3rd millennium B.C., based on archaeological discoveries, several centers of handiwork or trade existed, and there were probably different clans or entities that coexisted on the island, sharing a similar culture and possibly a similar language. It is believed that this evolved into monarchies, and the sovereigns of these small but probably prosperous states began to build their political entities. However, around 1700 B.C., after what looks like a millennium of gradual progress, a large disturbance occurred, probably a major earthquake given the zone's seismic activity. But it could also have been an invasion. We don't exactly know. Several palaces across the island, including those at Nosos and Phaistos, were destroyed. The Minoans recovered and reached the height of their civilization based on their artistic, architectural, and material production in the 17th and 16th centuries BC. At that time, they heavily influenced mainland Greece where crafts and decorative patterns coming from Crete, inspired by Crete, were abundant. Palaces were rebuilt, showing how the Cretans had recovered. And natural disasters did not spare them. Another catastrophe, possibly an eruption, damaged their palaces again around 16 B.C., and yet again in 1450 B.C. This last one apparently destroyed most palaces, but the one in Knossos was spared. In the following decades, the masters of Knossos may have extended their domination to all of Crete or large part of it, but the advance of Crete over its neighbors from the Greek mainland had vanished at this point. It had become weaker, and the dynasty that reigned from Knossos was overrun by Greek invaders. After that, the Minoan civilization declined. The remains of its past splendor were abandoned, and its traces in Crete get lost by the end of the second millennium BC. Further north in Greece, it was now the turn of the Greek cities to flourish, develop, and expand their culture with the influence that we know. But Greek civilization owes a debt to the Minoans. And even though Creek was absorbed into the Greek world, like all islands in the Aegean Sea, it was still considered a little bit alien, a little bit foreign by the Greeks. It was part of their world, but also on the margin of it. 
at least to the other authors from Athens, that form a big part of the body of ancient Greek writings that we know of. It is possible that the natural disasters that struck Crete contributed to its decline and partly inspired the myth of Atlantis, as told by Plato. However, the manner in which the civilization was not wiped out overnight, it had a long period of steady decline. The destruction it suffered likely contributed to its downfall, and this may have left an impression on the Greeks, leaving traces in their oral tradition until it was recorded in a mythological form centuries later. These palaces, probably the centers of political life in Crete, were monumental buildings with administrative purposes. We know this because large rooms for the storage of archives were discovered in their ruins. The Minoans also built many other things, including houses, but these palaces stand out for their size and complexity. They were multi-story buildings with numerous staircases inside and outside, light wells and courtyards, sometimes lined with massive columns. They had astute systems to collect rainwater and store it, as well as sewers. The Knossos Palace, which was the largest, covered an area of about 20,000 square meters, which is about 215,000 square feet, and between its different floors, it could have had around a thousand rooms. Some frescoes have been well-preserved, revealing a colorful and refined aesthetic reminiscent of later Greek art, unique to the Minoan culture. So, these remains have provided a lot of insight into this lost civilization over the past century, but many questions remain unanswered. We don't exactly know what their states were like, how they were governed, and much of their religion and society are also little known. Even their language brings us back to the Feistas disc. Minoan is an unclassified language. They seem to have had several scripts for their language or maybe several languages on the island. But as of today, most of their writings are still undeciphered. An unclassified language means that it could not be associated with a broader family of languages. Crete is where two large linguistic groups meet, Indo-European languages and Semitic languages. The main languages spoken today are Arabic, Amharic, a language used in Ethiopia, and Hebrew. However, at the time when the Minoans emerged, the ancestors of modern Semitic languages like Sumerian or Elamites were spoken in Mesopotamia, while ancient Egyptian was spoken closer to Crete. However, comparisons with Minoan writings with Semitic and Indo-European languages were inconclusive meaning that they couldn't be integrated into either family.
This suggests that Minoan may have been a unique language developed in Crete or spoken by people who occupied the island. So why is the Phaistos disc interesting, given that many other documents have also remained undeciphered? Because it is the only find of its kind. The script on the disc has not been seen anywhere else, which is puzzling. One possibility is that the disc was merely decorative and not a medium for writing. However, this notion has been largely dismissed because the same signs or hieroglyphs recur on it. There are 242 tokens on the disc, but only 45 different signs. Some appear frequently like a human head with a crest, a bell-shaped symbol that looks like a helmet, or what looks like a boomerang. Others appear only once or twice, as if they correspond to less frequent words or concepts. These signs also resemble hieroglyphs from Egypt and Anatolia, which further suggests that they correspond to a text. Additionally, every two to seven symbols there is a separation bar, which seems to indicate different words or sentences. All scholarly attempts at deciphering the disc have failed because there is a lack of material to compare it with, making it challenging to make sense of the signs. Typically, lost written languages have been rediscovered and understood again because they appeared alongside known languages or because a variety of documents allowed for comparison and the understanding of context. There is nothing like that here because the disc is the one and only artifact with this script ever found. This means that there are no external clues, but it also means that claims to have deciphered the disc are likely inconclusive. It is a relatively short script, so you can come up with an explanation of what it could mean that internally makes sense. But without any other sample of this writing, it will never be possible to apply it to another text and confirm that the code has been broken. However, because it was mysterious and challenging, the disc immediately attracted a lot of attention, including from amateur archaeologists. Numerous hypotheses have been brought forward. It could be prayers, a narrative, or an advent calendar, or a geometric theorem. It could also be music. Maybe the symbols correspond to a different key or strings of an unknown instrument. Or why not a board game? At this point, with the limited information on the two sides of the disc, it is impossible to be certain. Since its discovery, there have been more than 20 claims of decipherment, some quite erudite from linguistics and other experts, others probably more based on imagination. 
The Phaistos disk is sometimes cited as an example of pseudo-archaeology. That is to say, when people with no connection, and sometimes no regard for discipline, as it has been practiced in universities and research institutions, with its protocols and evidence-based approach, come forward. Such individuals have claimed it was from Atlantis or that it would prove connections with advanced ancient civilizations or even extraterrestrial influence. What could really be a game-changer would be the discovery of more of that script, if there is one. It would provide material to compare it with, and who knows? Because the known palaces of Crete have already been thoroughly searched, but Crete is a large island. The Minoans exported artifacts around the eastern Mediterranean, and it is not impossible that other artifacts could appear one day. A tablet? An engraved stone? Another disc? That would open new possibilities. And now, for our third story, let's return to modern times and cross the Atlantic Ocean for another mystery. This one of geological and scientific nature, and one that is satisfying because it was recently explained. Imagine rocks that can travel without any human, animal, or even vegetal intervention leaving tracks behind them. This occurrence is rare but real, and it caught the attention of prospectors and travelers at the beginning of the 20th century at a place called Racetrack Playa in California. Racetrack Playa is a dry lake in the mountains east of California, near the frontier with Nevada. One particularity of this dry lake is how flat it is. It is of respectable size, about three miles long and one mile wide. But the difference in level between the two ends of the lake is only one to two inches. This is remarkable given that there are mountains all around. The dry lake is located in a valley and when there are heavy rains, water washes down from the surrounding mountains and drains into the lake, which, for a short time, leaves a thin layer of water. But the region is deserted, and the water quickly evaporates, leaving only mud that dries and shrinks. Cracks appear and form a kind of earth mosaic, that is often seen in desertic areas. So, the observation that large stones were apparently traveling alone on this dry lake, leaving trails in the dry mud, finally sparked interest from geologists who mapped the site in 1948 and confirmed that the stones would slide with apparently no external intervention. A search for a similar phenomenon elsewhere started, and another site in Nevada was discovered. Suddenly, a variety of possible explanations arose, 
including various supernatural ones and also the possibility of a magnetic phenomenon or an effect of the wind when the surface was muddy. But this last explanation didn't work because some of the stones were quite large, the weight of a person, and there was no way even a powerful wind could have pushed them through the mud. The mystery remained unexplained with certainty. In the 1970s, a systematic study of the stones was made. Thirty stones with fresh tracks were labeled and their locations were precisely noted. Their changes in position were recorded over a seven-year period. Some of the stones stayed still for entire years, sometimes several years in a row, and then suddenly they started to move again. The hypothesis that ice sheets formed on the surface and helped the stone slide was tested inconclusively, but this seven-year study confirmed that the stones moved without human intervention and that it couldn't be a hoax. In the 1990s, a new study at the site confirmed that ice and wind played a role, but it was not entirely understood how. Finally, a few years ago, the movement of rocks was tracked using GPS and time-lapse photography, which helped grasp what happens when the surface is humid, the water drains from the nearby mountains. This thin layer of water may turn into ice by night due to low temperatures. Then in the morning, the sunlight hits and breaks this thin layer of ice. The stones end up on these ephemeral rafts of ice, which strongly reduces the friction with the ground. And if, at the same time, the wind blows strongly enough, it pushes the stones on their ice rafts. This explains why the phenomenon never happens in the summer. The temperature doesn't drop enough at night to freeze the water. The floating ice panels show rocks traveling at up to 5 meters per minute. This is relatively slow but still visible. Therefore, in these very particular conditions, it is possible to see a rock traveling on its own across the surface and leaving a track behind. This is the end of our journey for tonight, and you can let go and fall asleep. Or if you prefer, you can pick another story from my library. And until we meet again, good night, sleep well.